0: Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode.
1: Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody.
0: And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, why online grade books are making schools harder for some students.
1: And our series on the Sonoran Desert, Swaroland continues with an instrument maker who gathers his materials in the desert.
0: But first, a string of arrests have been made by police in Gilbert, Mesa and Pinal County in recent weeks in relation to the high school gang that called themselves the Gilbert Goons. The arrests are coming fast and furious now, but attacks by the gangs by the gang went on for more than a year. In October, 16-year-old Preston Lord was beaten to death outside of a house party in Queen Creek. And Not long after, reporters at the Arizona Republic started connecting the dots between that murder and a string of other assaults in the area. Many of them had been filmed and posted online. Robert Anglin is one of the reporters covering the story, and he's in studio now to tell us more. Thanks for coming in, Robert.
2: Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So I want to talk about the beginning of this, like just how long had the Gilbert Goons, this kind of gang of high schoolers, been basically attacking people and then talking about it online in this area?
2: Some of the first videos I found um, date back to November of 22, December 22. So more than a year. or or 11 months up to the murder.
0: Wow. So residents, it seems like, had been complaining about this before Preston Lord was attacked that night, right?
2: There were some complaints, but Preston Lord was the catalyst. The murder of Preston Lord, the 16-year-old, he was beaten to death outside a Halloween party on October 28th. He died two days later after Mm -hmm. the beating. And that was the catalyst to push a lot of outrage from the community. And people began pointing to different... Um, attacks by this group. I got involved about um, just at Thanksgiving, and I came in, and it was started piecing it together along with my colleague Elena Santa Cruz, mm-hmm. and we began putting these these beating attack, you know, together. And we were looking at the videos that they this group would post online, individual members, and we were like, "Well, that person is here, this person is here, that person is here." We can we could start tracking the actual beating videos. And if we could do it, the question becomes, why weren't police doing it for a year?
0: Right. So tell us about the response by the police. Um, and this was in several jurisdictions, it sounds like, at that point when that death happened, when Preston Lord was beaten to death.
2: Yeah. OK. Preston Lord was was beaten to death in Queen Creek. Right. The nexus of the attacks appears to be Gilbert, hence probably their nickname, the Gilbert Goons. And we we determined very early on that they had given themselves this nickname— That it was it was self-generated and they post they were very proud of their attacks um, and they seemed to have enjoyed it. In fact, we found court documents dating back a year where individual members had said, I I attack people. I attack strangers because I get I like it.
0: Hmm. What did the police do when Preston Lord was killed?
2: Well, they're two different – again, two different agencies. Queen Creek launched what appeared to be a a pretty rigorous homicide investigation. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Gilbert stood in the shadows. And when we went to Gilbert and said, what is happening? Why haven't you done this? The police chief gave some lukewarm response – lukewarm is being generous. He said, well, we – and publicly he said, we never connected these because – The people who were victimized never told us they were being attacked by the Gilbert goons. They never used that name. And that left me thinking, well, are all victims supposed to know the identity of their attackers before the police can launch an investigation? Hmm. And and there's still not a, a real cogent answer immediately upon our story being the first story being published on December 14th. The police the next day, Gilbert police said they were reopening at least one investigation. They have since reopened nine um, or opened nine, four were reopened, five are new, Mm -hmm. and they're all based on these attack videos.
0: Hmm. Okay, so police are involved now and going forward now after your investigation has come out. How many arrests have happened at this point?
2: Seven um, as of last um, week, and they were all last week. What's amazing is some of the departments, Mesa Police Department in particular, Pinal County, in particular, looked at the videos within the last. Mesa got a video two weeks ago, and they made an arrest within, within really within seven days. Hmm. Um, And and that the focus of that arrest, the target isn't as a juvenile. The Republic isn't naming the name of that. We're not naming juveniles, but that particular person, I have him in three attack videos. One at a park in in Mesa, which is the one he was arrested for, a parking garage in Gilbert, an In-N-Out beating from um, December 22 um, in the parking lot of this In-N-Out in Gilbert. (laughs) Nothing has happened with Gilbert police in regard to those cases. But that Mm -hmm. individual was also the subject of a search by Queen Creek police in the murder of Preston Lord. Mm -hmm. So you can start seeing the overlap.
0: Yeah, yeah. And these videos were not hard to find, we should say. Like these were public. They were online.
2: Yeah, although the the subjects now are erasing them right and left, mm. but we captured quite a bit of them. But they were online, and with sometimes the hashtag Gilbert Goons, sometimes just individual names, they were shared privately, and we've obtained those. They're they're vicious, and we're not talking about minor attacks, uh, homicide notwithstanding. Right. Some of these attacks left kids put hospitalized. They had fourteen thousand dollar hospital bills. Um, one kid had his st- head had to be re- stapled because they were using brass knuckles. These are vicious, violent attacks, and if you watch them, they're almost staggering wow. because you see a group of kids swarm a victim and and just pummel them.
0: Wow. So what else do we know about these kids in this in this gang, the Gilbert Goons? Like some are being charged as juveniles, as you said, some as adults. Um, much of the coverage around the story has been about the fact that they're from some of these you know, affluent parts of town.
2: Yeah. Um, the, there are there were I started with the four in a in a exclusive subdivision, a gated community called White Wing and Gilbert. Most mm-hmm. of the houses there run upward of a million dollars. Um, and there were there were four individuals. They are, by any any judgment, wealthy white kids. Which makes the first arrest by Gilbert PD kind of baffling. Of, of all these videos that are of predominantly white kids, the first two arrests by Gilbert PD were of, um, or the first arrest was of a black individual, a black student, mm-hmm. um, or pardon me, a black adult, and they released his picture. But what was wild about that is on the day they arrested him last week, they said, this is the only arrest we've made. This is the only arrest we've we've made. Yeah. I, I got hold of documents showing they'd actually arrested three people, cited and released the other three, and they didn't want to say anything about it. So for hours Tuesday, they maintained there was only one arrest. Elena presented Gilbert with the documentation, and Gilbert police said, nothing except they released a press release a half hour later and said, we also arrested three others.
0: Mm. All right. We'll leave it there for now. Lots to watch for Robert Anglin with the Arizona Republic joining us. Robert, thank you for coming in. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you for having me. Thanks for your interest.
1: The NCAA is considering big changes to its structure and in the issue of student-athlete compensation. The group's president, Charlie Baker, has proposed creating a new subdivision within Division I. Schools in that new subdivision would be able to directly compensate athletes, including through name, image, and likeness, or NIL deals done through the school. NCAA leaders were in Phoenix last week for a conference, and with me to talk about what role this proposal played in that is Justin Williams, staff writer at The Athletic. Justin, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So like this seems from an outsider's perspective, like if this proposal were to go through, it would be a huge change in the NCAA. Is it in fact? Would it in fact be a huge change?
3: Yeah, it absolutely would be and you know it's fair to call it a proposal but it's also you mentioned the convention um that's the annual convention the NCA has that was in Phoenix this month uh that was not voted on you know officially at the at the convention right. it's not something that has been you know kind of officially discussed and and put through those channels so it it's still very early stages a lot of places you've seen this maybe called a conversation starter and i think that's fair it, it was the NCA president charlie baker kind of putting this proposal out there Uh, It was not something that was necessarily vetted or or went through a bunch of different committees. It kind of just landed in people's inbox, uh, I believe, in December. Um, And and yeah, it it caused a lot of waves because it would be a massive change for the NCA. But it's definitely still something that's kind of in the early discussion trial stage.
1: All right. So let's say this is, in fact, a conversation starter. What has the conversation about it been so far? Honestly, kind of a lot of surprise by people that have followed the NCA, you know, for so long.
3: Especially under previous president Mark Emmerett, the NCA was criticized because it was, um, you know, reactive. It was not kind of making these changes towards compensating athletes, whether it's directly or through you know NIL legislation, things like that. The NCA has really fought hard for a number of years to kind of hold on to that amateurism model, yeah. And that includes people might know about the Alston case, which the NCA lost nine zero. To the Supreme Court, a Supreme Court that you know very rarely agrees uh, is an agreement unanimously on something. The NCA lost that in in 2021, and so we've seen the NCA really struggle in court the past couple of years for some of these um, player empowerment, student athlete empowerment uh, cases that have been brought to them. And this proposal by Charlie Baker, in, in some ways, is certainly viewed as the NCA finally trying to be proactive and kind of putting out some potential, um, you know, changes that can be made without it being something that's directed by the court. There's also kind of a more cynical view, which is the NCA is is working towards an antitrust agreement Mm. or, or that's what they want to get from from Congress and that this is this proposal was kind of a way to try to appease Congress while ultimately, you know, hoping to get that antitrust exemption that they're looking for.
1: Well, so for someone like Charlie Baker or other folks who think this might be a good idea, like, what is the advantage of allowing these NIL? Deals to be done sort of in-house If the schools do it. They would be able to basically pay student athletes, what, $30,000, at least half of their students uh, while still complying with Title IX. So male and female athletes, student athletes would, would each have to be compensated. But like, what's the, what's the advantage to the, the NCAA of doing it that way instead of some other way?
3: Yeah, honestly, the details of it are all still kind of up in the air. It could be by bringing NIL payments in-house. Like you mentioned, it could be by creating, you know, basically trusts for, for athletes, whether ah. it's, you know, they're getting paid out immediately or maybe those trusts are held until they exhaust their eligibility. The details are kind of all still to be worked out. But essentially what you have is the NCA is trying to justify – Paying, you know, finding a way to pay athletes while still, again, kind of retaining some form of that amateurism model, meaning. The athletes would not become kind of full blown employees who could then collectively bargain for things like salaries or uh, health benefits or things like that. So this is kind of the NCA's proposal of saying, what if we did it this way? And honestly, it's really them working against some of these cases that they're facing in court where student athletes have, you know, whether former or current student athletes have brought forth cases that would result in them being able to be directly compensated or be being able to collectively bargain. And so it's kind of you know two different things happening at once, which is there's a bunch of battles being fought on, on the legal front uh, against the NCAA and then the subdivision proposal is the NCAA saying, all right, well, what if we did it this way and what if this is a way for us to find a way to compensate athletes, whether it's through NIL or Trust or whatever it is, but also still maybe kind of fend off some of those legal cases that they're up against.
1: Right. Well, and we've seen since NIL became such a big deal that it's almost like there's a bit of a haves and have not situation between schools which have big uh, booster groups or are able to, you know, are in markets where student athletes can get lucrative NIL deals versus those that can't. If this or something like this were to go into effect, would that just sort of exacerbate that?
3: Maybe, you know, honestly, for a, for a while now, college sports have kind of been that haves and have-nots. That's really taken off with the way these conference uh, media rights deals have happened. Yeah. You know, conferences like the SEC and the Big Ten are making a lot more TV money um, than other conferences. And so you're always going to see, you know, probably the schools in those conferences maybe having a little bit of an advantage financially. NIL's been interesting. You have certainly seen places like... Alabama and and Michigan, kind of those um, historical blue bloods certainly take advantage. But you've also seen schools like, you know, Washington's a good example. Mm. It was a school that was able to use, you know, they just played in the national championship. They're able to use some NIL money to maybe bring back players who would have gone somewhere else or or gone to the NFL a year earlier. And so there has, in some ways, there's been maybe a little bit uh, examples of where the playing field has been leveled. But I think you're correct in the sense that if this subdivision is created, which would basically... Create within Division One kind of another smaller subdivision. We're really talking about the top programs that you know, the, the quote unquote power conference programs, and maybe even just the top tier of those conferences yeah. or those, those programs that would be once again setting themselves up above everyone else in college sports. So, whether that's football, which is already really kind of um, broken apart. Or, you know, if you're talking about men's and women's basketball or you have something like the NCAA tournament, or even though there's big programs and small programs, there's still kind of that chance for anyone to get in and and win a game and for Cinderella to, you know, to take down a bigger team. Uh, A a subdivision proposal like what Charlie Baker kind of put forth, it would pull further and further away from from that kind of uh, reality that we still are holding on to.
1: Interesting. All right. That is Justin Williams, staff writer at The Athletic. Justin, thank you. Appreciate you having me. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody.
0: And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, how one Arizonan turns agave stocks into instruments.
1: But first, election season is already in full swing and 2024 will be the first elections in the generative AI era. There are a lot of questions and concerns about how artificial intelligence will be used in and potentially impact elections. With me to talk about that is Michaela Pandathorotna, counsel at the Brennan Center for Justice in the Elections and Government Program. And Michaela, what are some of the areas in which AI may play a role in this year's elections?
4: We
5: expect artificial intelligence to play a role in a variety of ways, Uh, you know, that could uh, look like deepfakes or uh, the use of large language models to produce written content. Then, of course, there is uh, political advertising and fundraising, the use of AI in campaigns, generally speaking, and the use of AI in election administration as well.
1: How prevalent is AI in terms of campaigning so far based on what you've seen and what you've heard?
5: Well, there's the more sort of traditional use of AI to process and synthesize information, and that kind of AI has been used for a while, although it's getting more sophisticated all the time and can also now be combined with this newer kind of generative AI, which can can produce new content. Um, that latter kind of kind of AI, the, the generative AI, um, you know, is starting to be used more more by campaigns, particularly. In, in advertising and in communications with with voters, um, but we'll we'll sort of have to see how this this plays out and how how prevalent it, it becomes.
1: Does that type of AI seem particularly problematic to you?
5: I think both kinds of AI produce both opportunities and and risks. Uh, the, the generative AI does sort of pose a concern in terms of, of deception, particularly. When voters aren't sure what they're seeing is is genuine or whether it is fake and manufactured, that does pose sort of a risk that there'll be confusion about, about what is real and what isn't.
1: In terms of, like, did a candidate actually say what, you know, what you're seeing on the video or what, what you're hearing on audio, things like that?
5: Yeah, that's right. So, you know, campaigns could put out um, you know, and in fact, they have put out uh, video images and audio that seem to portray other candidates as doing things that they didn't do or or saying things that they didn't say.
1: That, of course, has been an issue for a while, right? Like, does the AI just kind of make it easier for campaigns to do that sort of thing and maybe more difficult for voters and others to detect that it's happening?
5: Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that that we sort of talk about, generally speaking. In many cases, AI is an amplifier, so it's exacerbating existing risks. So, of course, you know you could use Photoshop or other tools before, it's, as you mentioned, to create these these deep fakes. You know, some of the more simplistic uh, creations were, were called cheap fakes before, mm. but now you could do that on a more massive scale you can do it at lower cost and and making it look more sophisticated is easier now as well.
1: Right. So I guess in the universe of potential risks that folks who do what you do are concerned about leading up to the 2024 elections, where does AI fall relative to sort of all the other things that, that we keep hearing about?
5: Uh, you know, I think it is, it is a substantial risk. Uh, you know, we are concerned about Sort of spoofing of election websites. You also have the ability to impersonate election officials in in ways that are um, potentially more sophisticated, or or again done at a at a more massive scale than than before. You know, so we are very concerned about it. But you know, as as we've discussed, many of these problems are longstanding. So you know, to the extent that that. Uh, there are sort of ways to to address this or or consider this. You know, it is in some ways um, more the the same issues.
1: Well, it kind of sounds like what you're saying is that AI, in and of itself, can pose problems. But really, the biggest issue is that it sort of adds another layer onto existing problems, especially in terms of uh, misinformation or or disinformation when it comes to elections, that it it just makes it harder to sort of rein it back in or to, to stop it once it gets out.
5: I think I think that's right. Generally speaking, I, I do think that there are some issues that will sort of demand us to think about think about this in sort of a new way. One of the things I'm most <laughs> worried about and, you know, this may may or may not manifest in, in the next election, but I, I do think it is a concern for future elections The possibility of interactive digital disinformation. So where AI systems are connected, for example, to robo dialers or other kinds of um, messaging systems and can engage in essentially conversations with voters that are potentially designed to manipulate or deceive and can adapt in real time to, to voters' responses. In the future, you know, you might see Sort of emotion recognition AI also being deployed in this context, or more advanced micro targeting of voters' racial and demographic characteristics. That's kind of kind of um, deployment of AI that I think is particularly troubling, and it might be considered to be an amplifier of an existing threat. I, I do think sort of. Significantly levels up the the risk.
1: Yeah, from your perspective, are there any potential positives from AI as as it relates to
5: elections? Yeah, of course. You know, I think that there there are potential positives, um, but it is very important to have guardrails in in place um, so that those benefits can be realized without sort of the the risks surpassing <laughs> surpassing the benefits. So, for example. We can think of, um, you know, uh, AI is currently used in in election administration to perform some functions. Again, that's the more typically, that's the more traditional use of AI to process and and synthesize information. Mm-hmm. And you know, you you could imagine potential uses uses of AI to uh, expand sort of access to to the vote by, you know, analyzing some of the the data that typically goes, goes into uh, identifying polling places, so maximizing accessibility um, using factors like geospatial analysis and traffic patterns, access to public transportation, that sort of thing. You know, it could also facilitate communications with voters, but again, there, there do need to be guardrails in place so that we know that voters are getting accurate information, reliable information, and the information that analysis that officials are relying on is, is reliable and accurate as well.
1: All right. Michaela, thank you so much for the conversation. I appreciate it.
5: Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Michaela Pandatharotna is counsel at the Brennan Center for Justice in the Elections and Government program.
0: Arizona is likely to be at the center of the 2024 election. We are a swing state on the border, rife with independent voters, and our next guest argues that means we have the chance to steer what could be a real spectacle of an election year toward substance. Sybil Francis heads up the nonpartisan Center for the Future of Arizona, which for 15 years has been working with Gallup to find out what Arizonans think about various issues, and their findings are pretty consistent. Arizonans generally agree on most of the big issues in our state, but that doesn't usually translate to what politicians do in office here. I spoke with her more about where those points of agreement lie and what it means that politicians usually ignore
4: them. So when we say Arizonans agree, we have a very strict definition of that. We have to have 70 percent agreement or more among this vast array of Arizonans. Our surveys are very, very representative. We made sure to ask people in rural Arizona, in urban areas of all political persuasions, education levels, income levels, race and ethnicity, religion. So when we say Arizona degree, we really mean it because we have the data to back it up. Give me some of the examples here. Like, um, let's start with education,
0: such a big issue to so many Arizonans. Where do most Arizonans agree when it comes to education?
4: Well, in the big picture, Arizonans really understand that education is very important to the future of our state. So we have huge agreement on the importance of not only high school graduation, but also moving on to post-secondary education, whether that's career and technical education, community college, or four-year university. Arizonans understand that not only is education important to the future of any individual and there success and well-being, but to the future and well-being of the state. Hmm.
0: When it comes to policies that underlie that, like how do we get there, right? Do Arizonans also agree on those kind of intricacies? Because many
4: politicians
0: don't, right?
4: Right. So as well, we also asked Arizona, what actions do they want to see? Certainly, Arizonans very much want to see more quality teachers and principals in schools. There's a huge concern about the, the lack of um, qualified teachers, especially in rural Arizona, Yes, Arizonans want to see more funding for education. This is something that has been true for many, many years. And um, I think Arizonans have shown this through a number of ballot initiatives, increasing funding for education. Mm -hmm.
0: So... When it comes to probably the biggest education issue that's going to be, uh, at least on the lips of many lawmakers this session, the voucher program, the empowerment scholarship accounts, the
4: massive expansion we've seen of that. Have you done polling there? Well, we have not mm. done p- surveys on this. One thing is that we sometimes um, you know, want to focus on areas that we don't already have data on. We mm. know that Arizona is rejected through a ballot initiative expansion of, of ESA some years ago. However, having said that, we are going to be doing a survey again, in this election cycle, and we'll likely touch on that issue since it is so important. Yeah,
0: more to come there. Okay. Let's talk about immigration, because that is quickly becoming maybe the biggest issue, at least on a national scale, and probably in many local races in Arizona as well, because of what's happening at the border right now. What do Arizonans generally agree upon when it comes to
4: immigration? Because if you listen to the political rhetoric, it doesn't seem like much. Well, what's so fascinating to me is the numbers here are just Overwhelming. Hmm. Now, I do want to recognize that immigration is very much driven by federal rules and regulations and laws. Uh, but we did ask about immigration, and so over eighty percent of Arizonans support comprehensive immigration reform with a pathway to citizenship for Dreamers. Wow! And when you think about that, it's kind of interesting that with such huge agreement, that for probably decades there's been so little movement on this issue, and that kind of begs the question about. Why? But there's very strong support for immigration reform. Arizona's, we also asked in what we called our Arizona voters agenda, we Mm -hmm. did for the first time did a survey of just likely Arizona voters in the 2022 election. We're going to do that again in 24. We did ask about some of the so called hot button issues like building the wall. Uh, that did not make it onto our Arizona voters agenda. And to get onto that agenda, there had to be 50 percent or more support across the board amongst Democrats, Republicans and independents. Hmm. Arizonans understand that, that Mexico is a very, very important trading partner with ours. And they really understand that immigration reform is important for a strong uh, commerce between Arizona and Mexico.
0: Yeah. So. It sounds like what you're saying is the rhetoric around most politics is is just that, like it's just rhetoric. So how do you think – and you've been doing this for a long time. Like how do you think we get around that? Like is it too idealistic, right, to, to think that politicians and voters will reject these kind of hot-button or headline-grabbing kinds of moments and focus on real issues?
4: So we do hear this pushback on our, our data that it's too idealistic, that it's um, – you know, is it really – representative of Arizonans and I like to say that that why are we so cynical why should we not <laughs> believe that Arizonans really do agree on these big issues now we're not naive enough to think that everyone necessarily agrees on how do you resolve them all but I think mm. it's very important to remind ourselves because People get very discouraged when they hear about polarization and division. It can be very, very discouraging if that's the story we tell about ourselves. So one of the things that I see as our mission is how do we tell a different story about who we are as Arizonans? Because I think when you do that, you can create some hope and opportunity for coming together mm. to work through those details. So I think it is important to keep you know the things that we have in common in mind. I also think that from a practical standpoint – You know, Arizonans very much um, believe in the integrity and security and safety of our election system. But interestingly enough, they don't necessarily think that elected leaders are representing their views. So that kind of made us go back and look at the data and say, well, this is interesting. Why do we have such gaps between what Arizonans say they want and how that's getting translated into our politics? Mm. And it kind of forced us to look at you know, is the way even our elections are designed, is it designed to be as representative as it could be?
0: Hmm. So is this leading to what you've written about also, which is that there is a, an initiative that could be on the ballot in November that would basically change the way we vote in primary elections, put in a form of rank choice voting. And the idea is to sort of eliminate the extremism in primary elections.
4: So we are a nonpartisan organization. We don't endorse uh, initiatives or politicians. But what I have said is that we definitely need to take a hard look at how our election system is designed right now. We know that in Arizona, we have equal numbers of Democrats, Republicans and independents, roughly speaking, and that our elections are designed around partisan primaries. And partisan primaries mean that it's much more difficult for, say, an independent to vote in a Republican or a Democratic primary. So the results get somewhat skewed in terms of representation of Arizonans Mm. because they favor you know, they're partisan, so they favor one party or the other. So, you know, if if you wanted to think about a new kind of design, why not think about a primary in which everyone can vote, everyone can run, and everyone can vote, and then the top vote getters move on to the general election. You know, I I did point out in my my op-ed piece that I think this ballot initiative, uh, Make Elections Fair, is certainly worth a look because they are trying to get at this problem. But as I said... You know, there may be different ways to get to this issue, but I think it's a very, very significant issue and I think mm-hmm. really is going to be the key to getting more representation out of our elections. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm sure you meet with lawmakers often, that you talk to them about exactly these kinds of points, often give them the data. How do they generally react to this?
4: Well, I get asked this question a lot because people get really, really agitated when I tell them about the results of our surveys and they said elected leaders... Candidates for office really need to understand this information. (laughs) And so, yes, I have briefed candidates running for governor in the last election. I've briefed um, candidates running for Congress, for the Senate, uh, legislators in Arizona. And they are very interested. But I will say it's been a little bit of a peculiar experience because my sense is that they think it's kind of interesting, but their eyes glaze over a little bit because I get the sense that it's not necessarily of direct relevance to them. (laughs) And I think this goes back potentially to how do they get elected? Do they get elected to represent the majority of Arizonans or are are they being elected through a system that is more partisan and really tends to be more representative of people who vote in primaries who are much more partisan? Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. We'll leave it there for now. Sybil Francis, president, CEO and chair at the Nonpartisan Center for the Future of Arizona. Sybil, thank you for coming in. I appreciate it very much. My pleasure.
1: Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ ninety one point five. I'm Mark Brody,
0: and I'm Lauren Gilger. Report cards aren't what they once were. Instead of a printed piece of paper once a semester sent home for a parent signature, most schools today use what's called an online grade book. PowerSchool, Ungrade, LearnBoost, and others all let students and parents access grades on assignments pretty much in real time. So
6: you can take a social studies test and have a grade posted an hour later. And not only can you see it, but your parents can see it.
0: That's New York Times opinion writer Jessica Gross, who in a recent piece examines how overwhelming this kind of grading system can be and how for a certain subset of students and parents, it's taking away from actually learning in school. Here's our conversation.
6: What I heard from many, many people is that there are 10% maybe of parents and students who the sociological literature calls hyper checkers and Mm -hmm. so they are just checking the grades all the time they are extremely anxious about the performance Um, they are often not really paying attention to learning anything anymore they're Mm. just so worried about the grade the grade point average that they're really wound up about it and in some instances and i would describe this as the worst case scenario parents and or students are irritating teachers every time they get a grade that they're not happy with.
0: Mm. So let's talk first about the teachers that you brought up there, this idea that they are kind of overwhelmed, it sounds like, with the amount of communication coming from students and parents. Uh, What do they think about these grade books in general? Like, what were some of the things you heard from them?
6: So, you know, it's pretty across the map. I think Some parents felt like this is a good way that I can stay on top of a student who maybe is struggling. Some parents felt like it eased communication with teachers. And so I think it's sort of not all bad. And I especially heard from, you know, some teachers who felt like, parents who maybe didn't have the time to be really involved in their kids' schools because they're working really hard. Maybe they have a lot of travel to do back and forth to work or school. Mm -hmm. Um, It'll let them be more involved. So, you know, I'm not trying to say that it's all bad, but I will say that teachers said that this sort of very active 10% of just squeaky wheels, you know, it's just this sort of extra not always necessary stressor when parents again are unhappy with one assignment or one test yeah. and you know what what they also told me was a lot of times parents and students were actually misinterpreting what they were seeing so an example that i heard come up a million times was you know an assignment was put in the system as a zero just because that's the what happens if a kid is absent mm-hmm. for the day let's say it doesn't mean they actually got a zero on the assignment but it can momentarily tank the grade point average mm-hmm. and so there were numerous instances where you know there'd be panic from the parent or the student that like oh my god you know my GPA was this yesterday and it's this today and the teachers were just like it's not it's meaningless <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it It literally doesn't mean what you think it does and mm-hmm. and if you just weren't checking so frequently, it wouldn't even register
0: right.
6: um, the sort of overall thing that I heard from a lot of folks was like it was sort of implemented um across the board over the past fifteen years without kind of thinking through. The downsides without training teachers, without training parents or students about you know best uses of mm-hmm. this technology, and that I think everyone really could use some guidelines, guardrails, so we can all have a healthier relationship with this. Because I think, you know, at this point, it's really the dominant mode of grading information
0: in the United States, and I don't think it's going anywhere. Tell me a little bit more about the students that you talk to, because, I mean, like anxiety, stress levels, like this is already such a part of the conversation about kids today. And this, it seems to be, you know, exacerbating those problems for a lot of them. What did they have to say?
6: Again, it's like a mixed bag. Some of them felt it helped them be organized. It helped them stay on top of things. And then others really felt like it was very detrimental to them. And it made them sort of over-focused on, you know, oh, this is how I'm doing. And this is, you know, how I stack up to other people. And so because there isn't actually as much research as you would like to see on something Mm -hmm. that is this pervasive, it did seem sort of similar to what I have read about social media, which is, you know... It is benign for most people who use it, but there is a minority of of people who are very damaged by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't know until you are interacting with this technology if you are going to be one of these people who yeah. is really not helped by it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So then let's talk a little bit about some of the advice that comes to hand here, right? Like, as you said, most people are going to be fine with this, but it seems like there are probably conversations to be had right now about how to better handle this kind of technology for parents, for teachers, for students in general. What are some of the best practices that came up?
6: So the, the suggestion that I thought was the best and could fix so much is that there are settings at the school district level or the you know, high school level that grades can just be released once a week. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean that teachers on their own aren't inputting the grades every day. It's that they just get released to parents and students once a week. So you cannot hypercheck because there will be no updates. Mm -hmm. So tweaking the systems just to staunch the flow of information. Mm -hmm. I would say, number two, then this is like what parents and students can do, adjust so you're not getting alerts every day. You know, and it's hard. I, I totally understand how much pressure there is to get into college to get scholarships my generation millennials were crippled by student loan debt I totally understand that kids who are you know hoping to go to college do not want that debt and and many of them want want to get it through scholarships and I I do not want to diminish the very real anxieties and concerns that many people have But I will also say that there is no evidence that checking your grade constantly actually improves your grades. I completely understand that grades matter. I think, you know, doing well in school is really important. It's important for my kids. Like, I'm certainly not saying just forget the whole thing and it's not important. I'm saying that... Being so wound up in it that you're checking multiple times a week, multiple times a day, is just not healthy behavior for anyone. And I don't think it's actually going to get you to a place where you're absorbing the material any better, or or reaching the goals that you probably want to reach, um,
0: both for parents and for kids. Yeah. All right. We'll leave it there for now. That is Jessica Gross, New York Times opinion writer, joining us to talk about her latest column on these online grade books. Jessica, thank you so much for coming back on the show. I really appreciate it, as always.
6: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger.
1: And I'm Mark Brody. And now it's time for the next installment of our series about the Sonoran Desert called Saguaro Land.
7: Sun and sand, sagebrush and tumbleweed,
5: rolling mountains, and giant cactus. From our armchair seat in the
7: sky, we see Arizona's famous Valley of the Sun at Phoenix. Camelback Mountain is
5: outlined on the horizon,
1: And today, we'll learn about using the desert to make music. Years ago, Kyle Burt was given a didgeridoo for Christmas. It's a long, thin wind instrument made out of wood with a mouthpiece and a bell. Burt had no idea how to play it, but had fallen in love with the sound. Unfortunately, his dog broke the didgeridoo, so Burt decided to try to figure out how to make them. He found out agave stalks can be used and actually have a really good sound. That was all more than two decades ago. Bert, who grew up in Tucson, is the owner of Desert Mountain Didgeridoos. He estimates he's made around 700 instruments in the 25 years he's been doing it. He came by the studio's recently along with some didgeridoos and when we sat down to chat, I asked what makes the agave stalk so good for this instrument.
7: So yeah, agave is interesting because it's it's like bamboo, it, it's it um you know, it's not a wood until it it cures and and um but a lot of times, I, I some of the research I've done it makes sense. is a lot of tone woods that are, grow up in more a moisture environment, like like swamp, like swamp mm-hmm. ash and stuff is great for guitars. But agave, you know, has the the, the middle with you know the pulque, or the, and it has, and then it, when it dries over time, and I wait about two years at least, um, but it, it hardens into. I mean, it's a hardwood. You can't put your nail in it, which is the you know the definition of a hardwood. So it has this light structure. But it's a hardwood, so it and it has a taper to it. So as you've seen, the big you know the agaves with the huge you know bottoms with all the leaves. Yeah, and it's you know related to the lily family, a succulent, not a cactus. So it shoots it up and then it dies. But yeah, all that um, and then that basically when you pull those leaves off, that bell is, is part of the you know is also part of the wood. So they just tape have great taper and the, and the resonance is incredible
1: what is your process for trying to find just the right stock because my understanding yeah. is you go out and you sort of scout them out but you don't yeah. just take anything no
7: so I'm really selective and really uh, environmentally you know conscious I I make sure that the plant well so the plant dies when it shoots the stock right up. and so I wait till all the seeds are gone um, which is you know about a year and a half and I make sure I shake before and, and but I I I'm real selective because I, I you know I knock on them and see what the resonance is in each one and I also yeah I get really the really old old ones and they just have better sound and they're usually those are the thicker ones that make it and so they're a little bit have just a little bit richer sound to them. So, yeah, very selective. If I go out for a whole day, I might come back with, you know, five, five or six. Really? So, yeah, and it's a lot of – it's a very strenuous work. So it's – it's you want to pick the right ones.
1: Well, how long does yeah. it take you to actually make them into the instruments once you have the stocks?
7: So it's very much like um, ceramics. So it, you, they have all the different steps. So, I you know, I bring them home and I cut them to the length I want because I kind of think about what key I want. And So once you have the length and you bore them out, then you resin them and then you, you, uh, you do all the different steps. There's so many – uh, I carve mouthpieces and stuff. So like ceramics, there's all those steps. Like if you added it up, it might be 15 to 20 hours. Mm. But it might take three weeks.
1: So you mentioned that there are different yeah. keys. Like yes. how do you yeah. – there are no valves. There are no oh. – like there's like a traditional – like many instruments, like you have yeah. – you know, you can cover a hole or you can press a valve down or something right. or a key yeah. to change the notes. But you don't have that. You you have a stock with a, right. a mouthpiece and an opening at the other end. Like yeah. how do you manipulate the key and how do you sort of manipulate how you play it?
7: Yeah. So that's I think one really – like cool thing about it is that it's it's um, because it is one key. It, it's you. It's more about imagination and and like um, breathing different rhythms. Um, so yeah, once you get the drone, you can kind of layer on top of it. You can in you can add vocals. You can you know a lot of um, you know imitate birds or or just even singing with the didgeridoo. Um, anything that you add or anything you do that's a little bit different will come out differently in the at the end so it's basically yeah there's no rules
1: yeah is there a long tradition of people using agave stocks to make didgeridoos or is this something that that's reasonably new
7: it's fairly new i feel like um it's probably in the past thirty years really thirty five yeah so it's 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 you know, it's, in, um, it's such an ancient instrument, but agave is relatively new to that. And then it's now it's kind of known as one of the best woods in the world for it. So it's kind of sought after in a lot of different, you know, countries and stuff that don't have agave, obviously.
1: Yeah, so what do they do? Yeah. Do they have to plant agaves in, in places where they're not native or where they're not necessarily supposed to grow?
7: Well, I, a lot of like a lot of them I just send to places that, like, you know, Germany, I just sent several there, but it's because they can't. I mean, there's no way an agave could grow there. So it's more that they just like purchase instruments from far away. Like I'll send – I've sent many to the to Europe and to Japan and to different areas that don't have agaves. So – and that's one of the cool parts is that you think it's like the seed that started in the desert and now it's all the way over in Germany or, or Switzerland or Japan and stuff. And that's a really cool part about making them.
1: Yeah. So can we hear one of these? Oh, sure. Yeah.
7: Yeah, so the C is kind of is it's one of my favorite keys and one I've kept a lot of and it's kind of it's a nice key because it's kind of in between key like there's there's so many I mean I have really high pitched ones to so low that it's it's I mean it's 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 almost like a different instrument at that point but but C's I think one of the best keys for for a beginner and um, and so yeah it's just one that I and this one I made 25 years ago with and, and that was it was probably one of the my first 15 I ever made and, and I kept it because I love the sound of it I still love the sound of it it's still one of the ones I play the most
1: alright let's take a listen mm. So you mentioned a couple times how much you love the sound of the yeah. didgeridoo. What is it about the sound that that speaks to you so much?
7: I think you know when I was when I was growing up, I heard at the Fourth Avenue Street Fair in Tucson. I was in seventh grade, and I just remember just um, I was mesmerized by it. And I remember listening to the player for so long, and I just I, I remember telling my friends that I was going to play didgeridoo and banjo when I grew up. and. I think they were both like, well, that's a lot. <laughs> you probably
1: got some weird
3: looks.
7: Yeah, seventh grade. Yeah. But um but yeah, I uh it just felt it felt really like I don't know, it was it was it felt like nature and I lo- I was such a nature I'm such a nature person, uh and it just felt really um, I don't know, it just resonated with who I was and and I just was I w- always wanted to play it.
1: It's interesting because – you, you met, and you mentioned how like it starts as a little seed in the desert. Then yeah. it gets spread all yeah. over the world. In a sense, like you're kind of spreading a piece of the Sonoran Desert to all over the world.
7: Yeah, I think that I, – I think about that a lot when I send them off and, and just like how – well, how you know difficult it is to survive in the desert. And going from a seed like of all the like, you know, the ones that they spread, like only, you know, how many actually make it and then actually make it to flower again. And then, and then spread their seeds and then die and then turn to wood and then it's an instrument that goes all over. So it's like keeps living on in, in a different form, which I love th- to think about that as a flower, you know, becoming an instrument that like, you know, still lives on. So it's kind of cool to think about.
1: Is there something about the sound of the didgeridoo that like evokes the desert for you?
7: It, you know, I it, it does feel like a desert. I don't know. It 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 makes sense that, like, agave would sound so good because it does feel like the desert. I think, like, maybe that's one of the reasons that the you resonated with. I don't know. It just feels like wide open spaces or just like this haunt, a little bit of this haunting kind of like, yeah. I don't know, it's hard to describe. But, yeah, it does. It reminds me of the desert.
1: How long do you think you're going to keep doing this?
7: You know, I guess till I can't do it anymore. I, I yeah. feel like uh, I'm still young at 46, so I, I've just – I feel like I still get all these ideas and I um, – I, I i now kind of want to make i don't know like create different i've been trying to work with some i've been making some agabi drums and um just some different instrument like it just have some more fun i've been doing some kind of like fusion ones where i put two stocks together so they have different big bells and smaller mouthpieces huh. so just some just keep experimenting so i think i'll do it the rest of my life or i know i will in some some aspect i don't know it when i'm 70s, like how much more harvesting might be a little bit more difficult. Yeah. But um, yeah, woodworking in general is just so good for me. So I, I'll be doing it as much as I can until I can.
1: All right. Kyle Burr, thanks so much for coming in. I appreciate yeah.
7: it. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: I feel like if we listen to a lot more, that market's going to just put me into a trance. I love it. All right. That'll do it for today's Tuesday edition of the show. Be sure to join us tomorrow morning with much more. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at KJZZ, the show. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us.
1: That's it for this episode of the show podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit the show.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.